Oh Lord, we praise You because You are God. We give You worship, Lord, because You are God. We bow before You because You are God. You are the one and only true God. And so, Lord, we are completely dependent upon You. Help us, Lord God, to understand You, to know You, to to be Yours, to enjoy You forever. Oh God, Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from your sight, but all things are open and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And so, Lord God, we are unworthy to stand before You And yet, Lord God, You welcome us and You cover us and You take care of us. And so, Lord, we come to You. Feed us through Your Word, through Your Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name. There is one God. And only one God. The one and only God eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is fully God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. And God the Holy Spirit is fully God. If you embrace those statements... If you agree with those statements, then you believe the orthodox view of the Trinity. That's it. To some of us, it seems second nature. And I've spoken on this three times already. Maybe three or four more to come. I don't know because this is one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's one that in our modern church... Sometimes we just gloss right over it. Sometimes we hear things that are heresy and we don't even know that it's wrong. I was just talking to the family as I was thinking about this on the way up here. And, and one of the things that I've shared with you before is that, and, and what Dr. Grudem says, is that there is no analogy that's good enough to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet I've sat through sermon after sermon after sermon that tries to explain it through analogy. And and in a sense, had latched on to heresy. And we're going to cover some of those things, but but what I want to share with you is that this is living. God is living. And He is so gracious to us to help us understand who He is. On the outline, where we left off was 
number B2C. We were in the middle of the Holy Spirit is fully God. And in that last lesson, it was demonstrated through the Scripture that the Holy Spirit has personal, independent activities and interaction with the Father and with the Son. This, this shows that the Holy Spirit is different than the Father and different from the Son, is fully God, has an independent personality, and yet is God. All part of the same God. And even that might be wrongly put. And I apologize because sometimes my choice of words are not adequate. And I fall into old patterns and say things that that, that aren't even in keeping with what I'm trying to teach you. So I apologize if that happens. You can talk to Bob about it after the service if you think I've been misstated something. Some of the personal activities ascribed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus. He intercedes for men before God the Father. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of God and knows the thoughts of God. He forbids certain activities. He told apostles, don't go here, do go here. He speaks to men. The Holy Spirit is grieved by sin in the lives of men. The Holy Spirit can be lied to, as with Ananias and Sapphira. Let's pick up there, Acts 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own, under your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have lied. You have not lied to men, but to God. So in verse 3, Peter says that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, Peter says that this same lie was a lie to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. They are one and the same and yet distinct. Lastly, the Holy Spirit lives within believers. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Spirit of God dwells in you. This is incomprehensible, and yet it's the thing that is the utmost privilege of a believer. Is it not? To have the holy God of the universe dwelling in us, giving us comfort, giving us guidance, giving us thoughts, giving us His words, His leading... I was speaking with a young man this week and and there was no preparation. 
No, no notice that I might be called upon by God to share His gospel with someone in the middle of a court session. And, and as I heard God tell me, okay, don't send him to Life Dynamics. You talk to him. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk to you more. I'm going to put your case at the end of the line and I'm going to talk to you when we're finished here. And so we, we talked. And, and it was amazing to me that some of the things that I shared with him were things that God had been preparing me for for this message. God does that. And, and, and some of the things were things that had been in my heart and in my mind, but I, I felt God moving those things through my mouth to His ears in, in really a, a, a way that I didn't understand. I didn't understand how God was doing that. And I'm going to share a couple of those things with you, not about that man, but about what God was sharing with me at that moment. And I think it's for us. I think it's for us. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? The next item is number three. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 1 Kings eight sixty, That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6 and 21 through 22. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Very clear, is it not, in the Old Testament that God is God alone, that there is no other God? God says throughout the Scripture that, that people fall down and worship things that are not gods. There are many gods with a little g. But God Almighty, the one who we worship, is the King of the universe, the Creator of everything. In Him we live and move and have our being. Everything else is false. And that's one of the things that thrills my heart is that God is a God of truth. He tells us the truth. And He wants truth in our inmost being. He wants us to be people of truth. And that's why He says, I hate lying lips. He hates it when people worship false gods. There is one God. That's the Old Testament, right? 
What about the New Testament? Does God confirm in the New Testament that there's one God and only one God? Or or is there some kind of new doctrine about three gods or, or what? What is this about? Well, of course, we're criticized. Christians are criticized by by the Jews and by the Islamic people who claim that we are tridiists, that we worship three gods, and so therefore it's impure, it's wrong. I'm telling you that's not the case. What did Jesus Himself say? Do you remember someone came to Him and says, what, what's the great commandment? What did Jesus say? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus said, There's one God. Well, what then would Jesus mean when He says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. When Jesus said, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. He says, why do you you come against me? Because of all the things I've done, the healing, the sick. No, no, we're not coming against you because of that. Because you, being a man, make yourself a God. Make yourself God, the God of the universe. How dare you? They said to Jesus. Jesus said, because it's true. Pilate, remember, at his crucifixion, asked him, and and are you God? Are you the Son of God? You've said it, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus declared that he was God, the God of the universe. And that there is one God. And so we see the Trinity. Romans 3.30 Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 1 Corinthians 8.4-6 Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. James 2.19 You believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, you're right. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we see that we are not only to believe that God exists, but to do something about it. And what that thing is to do is to believe. To believe that God is and that He what? What what is one thing that we are to do that demons will never do? Worship. To, to believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so, 
And so when we come face to face with the God of the universe, we repent when we see who He really is and who we really are. And we have to see that our lives are not right. And so we repent. God breaks our heart over sin. And we come to Him in repentance and in faith. Ephesians 4, 4 through 4-6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The only God, our Savior. How did God save us? God saved us by sending His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God came down from heaven to be our bread, to to feed us with life. God came down from heaven for the express purpose of dying on a cross. First Timothy two five, and this is the scripture that Pastor Bob started the service with. First Timothy two five, for there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I put this one at the end. I'm not sure if it's that way on your outline, but but I wanted to look at this. And, And later, maybe today or maybe in another talk, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the heresies, the things that people say that are wrong about the Trinity. And and this is one of one of non-believers' key verses, if, if there's a such a thing, as, as non-believers who use the Scripture to try to prove their points. So it's really important for us to look at this one. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. First, it confirms that there is only one God. That's what it says. There is one God. Second, this verse shows that God the Father is distinct from God the Son. Here the Son is mediating between God the Father and the people. So the Son is distinct from the Father. What is a mediator? A mediator is one who stands between, who takes part in a dispute. So so there's a dispute going on. And what is this dispute about? What is this fuss? What is this fight? What is the... What's it about? 
says here that God the Father is in a dispute with people. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a very smart thing to do. For people to be in a dispute with the God of the universe. In fact, it's not smart. Scripture says it's foolish. Scripture says that when you do that, you die. And and in fact, God has pronounced a judgment, eternal judgment of death on all people. In the day you do it, in the day you sin, you will die. And that's what we've all done. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person who's ever been born, except one, has sinned. And that one perfect person is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God's only Son, came down from heaven and became a man in order to be our mediator. He's the one who's going to go between us and God the Father, who is a God of wrath. And Jesus Christ, the mediator, will satisfy God's wrath by paying the penalty. Because there is this distinction between God the Father and God the Son, in other words, how can a mediator also be the party to the dispute. You have God on one side and people on the other and Jesus Christ comes in between and is making things right between the two. He's solving the problem by giving His own life. So people who don't understand this will say, well, this is, yes, it's obviously two distinct persons, God the Father and God the Son, So then how are they one? How can they be one? They wrongly say that because Jesus is a man, that He's just a man. So where it says here, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. People who think wrongly and don't believe this, don't believe it, say, well, He's just a man. In fact, there was some song that my Sunday school teachers wanted us to sing when we were little kids in Sunday school. They wanted to sing this pop song that he's a man, he's just a man. And that is wrong. They say, since there is only one God and since Jesus Christ is a man mediating between God and men, therefore Jesus cannot be God. And that's wrong. Because it fails to acknowledge that God could exist as three distinct persons, yet one God. In other words, they fail to believe and to apply the idea of the Trinity. No, the meaning of this verse has to be that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Fully God and fully man. The false teachers want to have their cake and eat it too. And this is what I mean. They use the Scripture. They use the Scripture to prove a point. And when they do that, they 
They show that they know that the Scripture is good and is right and should be followed. But then they deny the whole counsel of Scripture. One of the important principles of interpretation is that to properly understand the meaning of a passage, you have to apply what we know from all the other parts of Scripture that the author himself believes. We have to say, what does the author believe about this subject? Not just in this one verse, but in the whole chapter. Or in the whole book. Or in the whole Bible. So, let's do that. Let's look just a page earlier to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. This is Paul talking. Paul the Apostle, who used to be called Saul. So in the book of Acts, we start the book with a man named Saul. And who is Saul? Saul is a zealot. He is a Pharisee who is very well educated. He is a devoted Jew. And he is incensed. Saul is incensed that Christians are worshiping Jesus Christ. They are calling Him God. And so what does Paul want to do? He wants to kill them. He wants to arrest them, imprison them. He wants to stamp out this Christianity. First Timothy 1.12 I thank him, this is Paul now, after, after he's done this and after he's been converted to Christ. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And here's our scripture that is a hit when you're looking up one God, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why is this so amazing and so fascinating? in light of our discussion of the Trinity. Well, Jesus Christ is clearly the subject of this passage. The term Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is used four times in these six verses. So Jesus Christ is the actor, the one spoken of, 
The one who has the power is the judge, is the one in control. Jesus Christ is the one directing Paul. Jesus Christ is the one who offers grace and love and forgiveness toward Paul. He's the one who gives salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who has patience. The one who grants eternal life. And the one in whom Paul has faith and trust. All those things are in that passage And Paul says, this is Jesus Christ. This is who He is. And this is what He's done. And these are all things that only God can be and do and offer. These are the marks of deity. One who can forgive sins. One who has to have patience so that I'm not struck down dead. This is what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. And in the same breath, he says, there's only one God. So what is the only conclusion that can reasonably be made from this passage? That Paul believes with all his heart that Jesus Christ is God. It's inescapable. So, it would be completely wrong to suggest that Paul, who is the author of this letter, believed that Jesus was just a man. That would be completely wrong. It would be silly. And yet people assert that with impunity. They look at, they look at the stark words of 1 Timothy 2.5 and they say, oh, well, see, Paul just means that he's, Jesus Christ is different than God. He's he's the mediator. He can't be God. He's different. So be critical. Know your scripture and know someone who's just a man could not do any of these things. But here's what Paul says about himself. He says that at first, before he believed... He was blaspheming. Isn't that amazing for the number one minister of the gospel to say, you know, I'm a blasphemer. And why was he blaspheming? Because in his ignorance and unbelief, he was denying that Jesus was the Christ. He was denying that Jesus was God. He was attacking Christians because he thought that they were blaspheming. They were calling Jesus God. They were worshiping Jesus as God. So Paul was hauling them off to jail. And now, at the end of all of this, after having done that, Paul is marveling that Jesus Christ saved him at all. He's astounded. I mean, when you sit down and think about it, I mean, he's sitting down at the side of the road in the dust thinking, this is unbelievable. That I could be like that and do that and Jesus would even want to save me. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the biggest sinner in the whole world. And God calls me to be His minister of the gospel? To establish churches in all the earth? Unbelievable. Yeah. That's our God. 
He does things that are unbelievable. He calls sinners like us to repent and come on to heaven. He knows that we are but flesh. He knows that we are dirty and despicable in all kinds of filth. Yeah, I know that, he says. That's why I came and died. That's why my blood was shed to cover your sins. Paul is sorry for what he had done to the Christians. And he repented. He told God he was sorry. He was heartbroken over his sin. And that's where we need to be. Heartbroken over sin. Do you not know that you're the temple of the living God? That God sees everything you do? Do we believe that? We're willingly, what? Blind. We're willingly ignorant. We're willingly nonchalant. What? Oh, well. No big deal. It's a huge deal. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not just talking to you. But here's what Paul says. He identifies himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Jesus Christ. He marvels. Marvels. And then as he marvels, Paul breaks into spontaneous, exuberant, joyful worship of God. Look what he says. After after reminiscing about how awful he is, about how he did everything to God that can possibly be done, he killed people. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What else can we say? There is nothing... There is nothing that I have done or could do that would commend me before God, that would, that would make me pleasing to God. That's what the Scripture says. Not, not something that would make me pleasing enough to God that He would accept me into heaven. Because God says... See, God is a God of truth. God is a God of truth. And He says, I will not look upon sin. And the objection to that by the world is, well, how could that be fair? No. No, they say God is a God of love and forgiveness. I'm telling you, God says, I will not look upon sin. And that gives me great hope and comfort. That I'm left out of heaven because of my own goodness. Because I can look at myself and I can tell you I am not worthy of going to heaven. And you know what? 
I want heaven to be a good place to be. I want God to live up to His promise to me about what heaven is like. It's a, it's a land of perfection. Glorious goodness. There's no sin. There's no crying. There's no tears. There's no shame. No sin. How is that possible? Because God says, I won't look on sin. The Trinity, friends, is essential to our salvation. What do I mean by that? There has to be a mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin and came to the earth as a man. And that's what saves us. Because God's purpose in that was to send Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus hung on the cross, He received all of our sins. And the Scripture says that God the Father turned His back on the Son. Why? Because He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So there was an exchange. Where? Not when I kneel down and pray. At the cross. There was an exchange. Jesus Christ took on the sin of all the believers for all time, past, present, and future. And then He gave us His righteousness. He put upon us a cloak of righteousness. He covered us. So that when we stand before God in heaven, Jesus, our advocate, says, not, look at this pretty good Christian. He's headed in the right way. No. Jesus Christ says, look at your child who is perfect, who is clothed in my righteousness. Father, look at this, your child who has on my coat who's covered by my blood. Your child is perfect. Complete. And God the Father welcomes us in. Not on our own account, but on account of His Son Jesus who covers us. We receive the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go on with that. But I am going to tell you this. (laughs) Because this is an amazing truth in God's Scripture. And sometimes I think we miss it because of the action. And here it is. God chose Saul to be king of Israel. 
And God put His Spirit upon Saul to accomplish that task. When when God chose Saul to be king of Israel, His Spirit came upon Saul and Saul prophesied. You know, in the Scripture it says that that God, or in the, in the creed, it says God spoke by the holy prophets. The Holy Spirit speaks through His holy prophets. And so the saying went out in the land, is Saul among the prophets? Because he was prophesying. But then Saul sinned intentionally. And God withdrew His Spirit from Saul and anointed another one. And so we see that God acts differently in the Old Testament economy than He does with us. God says when He puts His Spirit on us, when we believe in Him, He's not going to remove Himself from us. He is going to be our God forever. But God God imparted His Spirit to His King, His anointed, His chosen one for a purpose. And so the king of Israel was to walk in the Spirit of God. So then, God told Samuel, the prophet, I'm going to anoint someone else to be king over Israel. And I want you to go to a little bitty town called Bethlehem. And I want you to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and I want you to anoint one of his sons to be king over Israel. He didn't tell him which one. So you know the story. Samuel came and he said, Here I am to see your sons. Let me see your sons. And so he brought the guys that were around the house there. Seven sons of Jesse. And Samuel passed by each one. He said, No, God's not telling me it's one of these. Don't you have any other sons? What did he say? Well, there's one, the youngest. He's... He's uh, out in the field. He's keeping the sheep. You know, he's my shepherd boy. We'll bring him in. And so he came in and Samuel said, this is him. God says, this is the one. He anointed him with oil. And what does it say in the scripture in 1 Samuel 16, 13? Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. David was anointed. David now is walking in God's Spirit. And I started thinking about that and I thought, you know, what's the next thing that happened to David? Well, by some miracle, (laughs) because the Spirit had left Saul, Saul got in a really bad humor. It says that the Lord sent an evil spirit to Saul. Saul was miserable. So they were looking around for someone who could comfort Saul because the Spirit of God comforts. Evil spirits bring misery and distress and sickness and death. We need someone who has God's Spirit. Someone who can play an instrument. Someone who can minister God to our king. Well, I've heard of a guy. He's a shepherd boy over in Bethlehem and he plays the harp more beautifully than anyone I've seen. He plays the lyre. Let's let's go get him. So they brought him in and of course, David's spirit was the spirit of God. 
And what happened to Saul's evil spirit when he was in the presence of David's spirit of God? He left. The evil guy left. And Saul was comforted. And so David left. He'd done his work. And the next thing that happens to David, according to the Scripture, is that David's at home keeping the sheep and all his brothers are over here in the army. So Jesse is the good father and citizen of the country and he says, son, I want you to take this stuff over to your brothers and to the commander. Cheeses and stuff. So David does it. He loads up the animals and he takes the stuff to the brothers. And what did David hear? When he got there, he heard a man blaspheming God. He heard a man not only saying, I'm the greatest and my gods are great. He heard a man say, your God is nothing. I will walk all over you because your God is nothing. Cursed be your God. Now what do you think God had to say about that? I am the Lord. There is none other. What do you think is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit? To give glory to God, the Father. To give glory to God, the Son. To uphold the name of God. To wipe out God's enemies. (laughs) Let's don't think about David as a brave little boy. Let's think about David as someone who is walking in the Spirit of God. And let's think about what the Holy Spirit does in this situation when he hears this big old tall guy, this giant, blaspheming God. He is incensed. The Spirit of God within David is incensed. And so David steps forward and he says, Who is this? person outside of our covenant, this uncircumcised heathen who is blaspheming the name of God. And what are you doing about it? The scripture says that David asked three times, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is blaspheming the name of God and what are you doing about it? And of course, he's ridiculed and he's, you know, his older brother gets on to him. And he says, I'm going to kill that guy because he is cursing the name of my God. He's a reproach to Israel. I believe when we look at this account that this is 
the Spirit of God moving within David to cause him to go into action. And see, David has the Spirit of God and he is a prophet of God. Do you understand that? When we read the Psalms, for example, even in the New Testament, David is known as a prophet. The Scripture says that holy men of God spoke through the Holy Spirit. So David announces prophetically what's going to happen to Goliath. And and then it happens. And you know what? David, David knows that God has been with him for a long time. What does he say to the people when they say, no, you can't do that, you're just a boy? He says, well, when the bear and the lion attacked my father's sheep, I went after them. And, and what happened? God delivered them into my hand. God did that. He didn't say, oh, look how, you know, I'm, I'm, I've learned how to fight. He didn't say, I'm, I'm well equipped to do this because I know just what to do. He said, the Lord delivered them into my hand and He will deliver this man into my hand. When I went after the lion and he turned around on me, I took him by the beard and I struck him and he died. And it was the Lord that did that. See, David knew that he couldn't do that. And he knew that it wasn't his own flesh and his own strength that was going to deliver him from Goliath. I mean, anybody could look and see that Goliath was, I mean, he was taller than Paul Renfro. I mean, lots taller. And he had been a warrior from his youth. And he was terrifying men, grown men, men of war. And why do I... Why do I bring this up to you? I want you to see that God has eternally exist, existed as, as three persons. And, and here's the, the really amazing thing about this is that God had a purpose. God had a purpose in David killing Goliath. And it was the purpose of God demonstrated as the Father... It was God the Father. His name was being blasphemed. So God was going to avenge. He was going to protect His own name. And He was doing that through the Holy Spirit. And as He did this, see, it established David in His role as a leader of this nation so that God's plan to bring the Messiah through David would be accomplished. God had a plan to establish an everlasting kingdom through the line of David. The Messiah was going to come through David. And so we see all three working together here three-dimensionally, four-dimensionally. God's plan for the ages was, was coming about and God was doing it all. And God does that 
throughout the Scripture. We can look time and time again and see God working through the Holy Spirit to accomplish His purpose. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we praise You for You are wonderful. Your plans and Your purposes are beyond our understanding. We could not have imagined how You do things and and why You do things. And yet You tell us, Lord. You tell us. And I pray, Father, that that these things would stir us up in faith to come to You in humility. Lord, that we would come to You in repentance. Lord, help us to live our lives in Your Spirit. Help us to, to know You so closely. Help us to know all the time that You are there with us. That You're dwelling in us. Thank You, our Father, for this great gift. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.